today's session. Slightly different um, for the end of term. Uh, we are talking a little bit about this book today, uh, Military Strategy in the 21st Century, The Challenge for NATO. Um, thank you all so much for coming. And I have great pleasure in introducing my colleague, Jana Harder-McLari, uh, who's Professor of International Politics in the Department of Political Science at uh, University of Oslo and the Norwegian National Defence University College. But she specialises particularly in European foreign and defence policy and in international security. Her current work is on the polarisation and fragmentation of modern European politics. So we have a bit of work to do, all of us. Um, she aims to better understand the visions of European democracies today and what causes them to become divided, which you know is a subject close to many of our hearts. Importantly, uh, between 1997 and year 2000, Jana served as the Deputy Foreign Minister um, in Kjell Magner Bondevik Christian Democratic Government. Uh, when she took that position, uh, she was the first woman to hold a high government post in Norway uh, since, apparently, the Protestant Reformation. Um, and uh, that's particularly important for her because um, she's not a Protestant. Uh, after her work as Deputy Foreign Minister, um, she served on the Norwegian Parliament Commission tasked with proposing changes to the Norwegian Constitution for its 200th anniversary. She's worked as a member of the National Defence Commission of Norway. She's on the Board of Trustees for the Oslo Centre for Peace and Human Rights. She's a prolific author. Uh, I won't go through quite all of the books, but I did want to mention uh, just a couple. Uh, one in particular was the United Kingdom's defence after Brexit, Britain's alliances, coalitions and partnerships, uh, which she co-edited with some lunatic called Robert Johnson. Uh, and that came out with Palgrave Macmillan in 2011. Uh, she's also written uh, a really significant work, Hard Power in Hard Times, Can Europe Act Strategically, which came out the same year, shows you how prolific and hardworking Jana really is. Um, she's also written on Ukraine uh, and the security challenges to Europe, uh, and indeed uh, on intervention for human rights in Europe uh, uh, back in 2002. Uh, she's the holder of the St. Benedict Prize, conferred, uh, conferred by the Benedictine community in, in Subiaccio, Italia, for her work on European culture and politics. Um, and 2009, a Pope appointed her a lifelong member of the Pontifical Academy of Science, Social Sciences branch, and she served uh, on the Council for Justice and Peace and consultant for the, um, the Council for the Family uh, with uh, the Vatican. So you have an extraordinary rich pedigree, Jana, and more importantly, you're a great colleague. Uh, really looking forward to what you have to say. To have to start with Mr. Shantan of century. We are then going to have some interventions, I hope, from Anders. Nice to see you, Anders, um, who's one of our authors, uh, and Steiner, who also is one of our authors uh, from the volume. I am not going to say anything because that would make it too long a session. Um, but Jana, perhaps you can kick us off. Uh, that would be splendid. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Rob. That sounded like a very interesting person you were introducing. Uh, so I feel really at a miss at how I can counter these uh, or meet these uh, expectations that have now raised tremendously. Uh, but I will try to say something about uh, how this book uh, was produced and the idea behind it, the rationale behind it. Uh, and uh, as Rob said, we have we have two excellent uh, colleagues from the. Um, Staff College of Norway, one in the flesh, in the room, uh, Commander uh, Steinar Torshat uh, from the Navy, and uh, the other one who is uh, from uh, AIR, the Air, Air Force, uh, is going to join us also digitally. 
so I'm here in Oslo. Uh, I um, co-edited this book uh, with Rob. It became a large book of 24 chapters. Uh, and the general idea was to discuss what is military strategy today, especially in the European context. Um, do states do strategy? Are state leaders, governments, able to think strategically uh, at all, in a way? Is political strategy something that uh, politicians still do? Or is that a foreign notion almost? Uh, and then, of course, the key question related to that, uh, does military strategy make any difference? Does it exist in uh, various NATO countries? Does it really matter? Uh, because we often see that, uh, as uh, Emil Simpson said in his, uh, argued in his book, War from the Ground Up, the tactics seem to uh, be, in a way, where, where strategy ought to be. Armed politics becomes the result of that. What happens on the ground uh, is something that um, hasn't been thought through strategically. There is no specification of a meaningful end state, political end state, for the use of force or for, for other kind of strategic activity. And we think that this is so important these days, increasingly important, because uh, other states use force uh, also increasingly for political ends, what I will refer to as political warfare, for want of a better term, uh, that is. So if we can just look first at the, the sort of layout of the book to the three parts of the book, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's a book with uh, 24 chapters, authors from various countries. Uh, it's, uh, it has contains three parts. One is uh, the generic part of what is strategy. The second one is the part on uh, how, uh, how should one think about strategy, the challenges, the risks and threats today, particularly for NATO Europe. And the third part is on uh, individual NATO countries, not selected uh, for, in a way, full representation, but uh, the major states of Europe are there, the United, uh, United States, uh, naturally, is there, and NATO strategy is uh, in a prominent chapter in that third part. And in that third part, we asked all the country authors to, to pose the question, does my country or this country I'm writing about, does it do military strategy in any meaningful way? Does it matter? Is it just a sort of um, pro forma exercise of planning or is there really strategic uh, thinking that matters to the country question? And as you can imagine, uh, the re replies or the outcomes of these chapters uh, varies a lot. Uh, well, then, of course, you are going to ask, uh, hopefully, and I think logically, what do I mean by strategy? What do we mean by strategy? And that's the first part of the book, the generic uh, part. Uh, and of course, we have a standard definition of strategy, uh, ways and means, um, strategic interaction being key. Um, that's uh, planning is one thing, it's a linear activity, uh, it's a means to an end, but in strategy, there will be competitors, adversaries, and even enemies. Uh, therefore, strategic planning is risky, 
as I develop in my chapter in that, in that part. Uh, and the risks are not welcome to most politicians, but also uh, strategy is difficult because the outcome, the end will never be as the strategy has ordained. Uh, yet without a strategy, one is completely clueless in the midst of battle in a way. Uh, we also um, discuss then uh, to what extent can one plan? There seems to be an inherent contradiction in strategic planning, emphasizing plan, and then the versatility uh, of uh, a strategy, the need for being able to adapt. So we have two chapters in that uh, first section on so-called adaptive strategy. And one can raise the question to what extent is that something new at all? Is it uh, new wine in old bottles? Uh, or is it uh, a heightened awareness of the need for adaptation, that it's very difficult to specify a political end goal, uh, for instance, for Afghanistan, Afghanistan being a good example of the lack of strategy, a lot of tactical operational planning, uh, a lot of, in a way, good outcomes uh, at the tactical and operational level, at least for quite some time, then uh, sort of a major problem from the very beginning of this 20-year-old uh, operation, namely the lack of a meaningful political goal for it, uh, creating democracy, etc. Uh, our colleague Ivan Aragoin-Toft wrote an article about Afghanistan entitled Afghanistan as a whole with H-O-L-E, and that was not a misspelling. <laughs> so in a way, the, the uh, difficulty in the complex in complex environments, as almost all are, of specifying a goal beforehand uh, is something that uh, preoccupies those that uh, do research on this adaptive uh, model of strategy. Uh, in the second part uh, of the book, we try to analyze challenges, risks, and threat picture. And I think here um, it's very interesting to notice that for Europe, on the one hand, there is a heightened sort of conventional risk. Uh, when Russia masses forces for the second time this year on the Ukrainian border uh, by more than 100,000 troops, this is conventional. I mean, the, the, one might argue that Russia is quite conventional. It's, uh, there isn't that big of a, a difference between conventional Article 5 kind of uh, risk and threat and hybrid or uh, sub-Article 5, or political warfare, as I, I will refer to it, um, using George Cannon's term for it. So in a way, uh, we have a heightened conventional risk, so to speak, for NATO. So there's a need to deter Russia to, uh, uh, to, to be strong in the conventional strategic sense. But at the same time, there is an everyday warfare going on, which we could term uh, political warfare, sub-Article 5, which requires um, sophisticated strategic thinking. Uh, and I think that's where we find Europeans much less preferred, uh, prepared, and this is where Europeans are themselves in charge, so to speak. 
a good example is uh, um, testing of native countries, uh, pressures, migrants as weapons uh, have, that has been used by Russia twice in Norway, Finland 2016, now Lukashenko by Morocco in against Spain, I think it was last year, a clear political political testing, political pressure, um, sometimes bordering on using force, military force, uh, sometimes not. So is this very interesting picture of, uh, uh, on the one hand, the heightened need for understanding the use of force, uh, on the other hand, the heightened political uh, nature of this, uh, even I would say when Russia um, stirs tension in Donbass, uh, it's still deniable, it's being denied, yet the reason is not to own a piece of Ukraine, the reason is to have a negotiating card. Uh, so if the reason is ostensibly political, it's not tied to the territory, yet the means are very conventional military means. Uh, of using the army and special forces, so so uh, is Europe prepared and uh, for, for for tackling this? Is there a strategic ability for uh, dealing with what Rob Johnson in his really good chapter in this part? Uh, I think it's chapter six or nine. I'm not sure, Rob, but uh, where he has this matrix of states cooperate, normal for Europeans. States compete, also normal, fair for European diplomacy, so, so to speak. Uh, but then is another C, coercion, uh, a, a fourth C, confrontation, and a fifth C, uh, conflict, armed conflict. So there's a whole spectrum of interaction between states today that is not benign, that is not classifiable as being cooperation or even competition, but is confrontation. Uh, and I think it's very clear that most European states are not able to, are not prepared really for uh, this kind of political warfare. Uh, so in this chapter we have, uh, in this part we have chapters on nuclear risk threat, conventional risk threats, um, uh, hybrid or political warfare risk threat, uh, etc. And in the third part of the book, um, a very interesting analysis of NATO's strategic thinking and work on the new military strategy, which is of course classified, but also uh, the run-up to the strategic concept uh, and on the US um, role in NATO. Uh, and I think the conclusion uh, to the book, the main conclusion has really been, uh, or is really that uh, there's a need for strategic seriousness in Europe uh, at present. And I have the last slide, if I recall, <laughs> from making them yesterday, uh, is really using Ukraine as an example of that. Uh, Europe or NATO, does NATO or Europe, one shouldn't say it's a NATO matter necessarily, doesn't have a strategy for Ukraine, Georgia, and these States that Russia regard as within the sphere of interest, but which Western countries certainly cannot regard in this way. But we are not going to involve ourselves militarily, although there are complaints that the, or 
rumors in the press talk in NATO. I heard yesterday from a, an ambassador there of uh, strong US involvement on the military side in Ukraine now. But that's beside my point. My point is simply that without uh, the map of a strategy, without having thought about strategy, to what extent um, will one get involved? Uh, on the one hand, one cannot say from a Western side that it's okay, do as you please, because these are not EU or NATO members. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one doesn't want to own Ukraine uh, or get involved militarily. So a strategy has to be found where, whereby Western states use other means, economic means, political pressure, etc. Um, and that has to, to be thought about before the pact. Now we will maybe again be caught um, in a reactive mode, having to scramble to find uh, the way forward. So the need for strategic thinking uh, on the political side and for the use of force as the state's uh, ultimate tool, or not always or ultimate, but the state's tool, uh, is indeed quite lacking in many European states, although France and Britain are certainly exceptions to this, where there are very recent comprehensive strategic documents. So Rob, I think that was my introduction, and I leave the floor to you and to the others, and I will be happy to uh, discuss and take questions. Yeah, no, it's very, very kind of you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm not sure who's going to go next, whether... Um, I can go. You can go? Okay. Um, so, so hold on, and those, uh, we'll come to you quite soon. Um, but let me introduce briefly um, uh, Steiner Torset, Captain, uh, Section Head of Military Strategy and Joint Operations at uh, Norwegian Defence University uh, and Staff College in Oslo. Um, lots of service, both in international uh, and indeed Norwegian national staffs. Uh, he served in Norwegian Joint Headquarters um, and uh, I should just point out as well that he's been part of the UK's own maritime battle staff, uh, combined joint operations, the Sea Centre of Excellence in Norfolk, Virginia, so he's had an American experience too, um, and uh, it's, we should probably just use the expression ubiqué, I think, to describe naval officers in the future, because you've served everywhere in every ocean. Do you want to just say a few words to us, Steiner, about your yeah, own yeah. work you did? Yeah, no, and, and Thank you very much for, for the nice introduction. Um, and I have to add to that that I've just joined uh, the staff college from the joint headquarters when this book was sort of starting to, to be uh, be born, the idea. I was dragged into it and I really, <laughs> it was a really, really interesting experience, I have to say. Uh, and represent, and what this book actually is, I will have to say, it's, it's a nice piece of work that brings um, practitioners and academics together uh, in order to have a, a balanced view on, on, on the challenges. And the idea for this chapter, which was basically the maritime uh, strategy, NATO's maritime strategy and challenges, um, it was captured when I was deployed on a German frigate doing an American-led coalition operations, CTF-150, in an operation Norway strategically didn't support. Um, CTF-150, yes, hunting terrorists. In the middle of the time uh, where pirates mm -hmm. and the pirate situation sort of bloomed in, in the Gulf of Aden and Indian Ocean. And suddenly EU came along and did the counter-piracy operations and NATO came along. 
And we all know that who is contributing with ships to NATO and to EU and to American-led coalition operations is more, it's, it's a lot of the same nations. And there is a challenge related to how do they do this? And what did NATO actually do in there? What was the strategic aim for NATO to be in, in the Gulf of Aden? Unless, you know, it's all about being relevant, which probably is a good uh, reason for, for why they, they did it. So that was the, the idea. I was curious about that. Um, so, so, and we have to remember that as it's not that long ago, even though it is, 1990, Admiral Kelso, CNO, US Navy, uh, said that we don't need maritime strategy anymore. The Cold War was over, there is no competition in, in the maritime domain, and um, when we did maritime security operations, and the NATO maritime strategy is actually from 2011. So in the middle of the time where NATO and others were doing maritime security operations, they developed their strategy. Um, so this it's not a surprise that the strategy is very much focusing on, on uh, maritime security operations. So when EU, NATO and others were sort of hunting terrorists, chasing pirates in the Gulf of Aden, Russian Navy was undergoing modernization process, missiles, submarines. Um, it was not paid a lot of attention to. It wasn't unknown, uh, but it was not in the focus of people that developed strategies and uh, plans. So. Yeah, NATO had a strategy from 2011. US, UK also have maritime strategies. U US still have maritime strategies, and we're doing a little bit of comparing the, the maritime strategies in the chapter. Um, US strategies are still naval, still maritime. Uh, UK strategies are sort of being brought in towards an all of government strategy, uh, looking into the, the um, total picture, Global Britain being maybe the, the, the last piece uh, in, in that respect. So when we looked into this, uh, the question we asked, what, what about technology? Is technology actually an adversary technology and developing of that a challenge? Silent submarines, long-range missiles introduced by Russia and China, uh, we look into those and basically they are they have an impact, and they will have an impact on how we develop maritime strategies, also in NATO. Um, but even though China is not representing a direct threat to NATO, I mean, uh, US is very focused on China, and if US is focused on China, it will have uh, an implication for NATO. That is uh, out of the question, we think. Um, the conclusion we made, uh, to make this short and brief, Rob, is that technology is definitely a challenge. But we ended up with uh, the fact that gold plating maritime structures in NATO and in the Western world is extremely expensive. We have some examples in the chapter, type 42 to type 45 in the UK, 14 to 6. Um, there are several examples of the Zumwalt class, big ideas of 32 ships, ending up with three due to cost and challenges. The Gerald Ford class carrier, extremely expensive. You've had your discussions in the UK as well related to carriers, carrier strike groups. 
and the consequences of having an operational carrier strike group. It brings basically with it the rest of the Navy when you are deploying it. So technology, high-end, front edge, is expensive. Numbers are getting reduced. It leaves big gaps, open gaps, when Queen Elizabeth goes to the Far East, what is left in Europe? That is all of questions we are, we are looking into. And, and the challenge, the biggest challenge for NATO, basically, we say, it's about numbers. It's quantity versus quality. Um, mathematically, ships can do the same when it comes to technology, number of missiles, range, and everything. But if you only have that number of ships, it gets very difficult for NATO to have a maritime strategy. And we have seen a lot of examples of NATO not able to fill its standing naval groups. Why is that? Well, it can be priorities for, for nations, but mainly it turns out, again, to be about numbers, available numbers for NATO. Norway had command of uh, SNMG-1, Standing Naval Maritime Group 1, just recently. And for too many months of that year, the Norwegian frigate, the command ship, sailed alone with a German tanker, going into the Baltic Sea, showing the flag. I don't know if they're doing deterrence by that, but you know, um, very small group. And why isn't nations actually filling up as they are supposed to do? That's the question we are asking, and it turns out to be numbers. I, I think I'll stop there, Rob. Yep. Thank you very much indeed. Um, super. Um, a useful uh, illustration of just one of the chapters and some of the dilemmas and problems that we sort of face. Um, uh, Anders, I'm hoping that you're on the line. Let me just briefly introduce you if you're still there. Um, Anders is a colonel, uh, currently associate professor in pedagogy at Norwegian Police University College and Norwegian Defence University College, NDCU, in Oslo. Uh, he's formerly been the research and development director um, of the Commander Staff College, uh, past program director of uh, NDUC's master's program in military studies. Um, he's editor in chief uh, of the Springer Handbook of Military Sciences. Um, he's the president of the International Society of Military Sciences, ISMS, uh, as well as a member of the editorial board of the journal Armed Forces and Society. Um, and we've got all sorts of plans, some great plans uh, underway, which we've been hearing about this morning. Um, Anders, uh, do give us your uh, pitch, please. Hello, Rob, and hello, all, all the rest of you. Well, uh, as Rob was saying, um, at the time of the, uh, the chat where this book was developing, I was the, I was the uh, program director of our master's studies in military studies at, uh, at the Norwegian Defense University College in Oslo. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because the, the chapter we wrote making, sorry, I'll, I have a short presentation that I can put up here before I start. So I hope you can see see the slides deck. We can, yes, go ahead. Yeah. So, so, so our chapter was the making of military strategy, the gravity of an unequal dialogue. I co-wrote this with my colleague Martin Anderson. The reason why, why we did it was partly because from our teaching of our staff college students, majors becoming lieutenant colonels, we had over the years uh, had the uh, under the impression that they were struggling what 
with the concept of military strategy. What is it? Who does it belong to? Uh, what do we put into it? Uh, where does it uh, come in um, into action? So at the same time, many of our students had served in the Baltics, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and they had sort of encountered this this um, this mismatch between the political aims that they were reading about in the newspapers and the tasks they were given on the ground. So when Janne and Rob uh, approached this project and said that they wanted people to write in it, we suggested a chapter on on, on this topic. So I'm, I'm not going to go through the chapter, you, you are able to read that, but I'm just going to give you a quick teaser into into it. And I'm going to do this by showing you, oops, let's hope, okay, there we go, uh, showing you um, three small pictures, that, uh, figures that we draw, we, we, we drew up for the, for the project. And what we were talking about and the challenges that, that were, were there were, does military strategy belong to the, to the political side of the discussion between the, with the political, with the, between, between uh, the military and the civilian society? Or does it belong to the military? That was the first sort of issue that our, our uh, students were facing. And if you think about it, military strategy is seen from those two parts. From a political perspective, military strategy is sort of is the is one of the bottom layers of the of their their everyday dealing with with conflicts. So they think about military strategy as something that they can departmentalize down to the military. While on the military side, military strategy becomes sort of the the top echelon of operational art. So in the military, you stretch upwards when you talk about military strategy. So already there is a sort of a disconnect between how we talk about military strategy in those two uh, communities. So we try to find out, how, to try to discuss a bit about this. How, how, how is this and what are the consequences of such an understanding? So, so we think about military strategy in this chapter as containing both civilian and military elements. And they belong somewhere in the nexus between statecraft and operational art. So that's sort of our, our starting point. Then we try to look into some of, the, some of the doctrines and to see if there's consistency in how we talk about it and how we, and how we theorize about it. So the Norwegian Joint Operation Doctrine describes, uh, describes military strategy as about translating politics and political ambitions into military strategic objectives and, and ambitions. So it's, it sounds pretty much like sort of a ends ways means discussion, but then in a sort of a Huntingtonian way of looking at the divide between the civil society and the military society. So in a sense, the Norwegian way of theorizing about this is that there is a sort of a uh, line drawn in the sand. Uh, it's a, it feels like a wall, but it's a, it's a line drawn in the sand. We don't, militaries don't cross it over to the civilian side, and civilians don't cross over to the military. Well, we of course know that this is just an archetypical way of looking at it. It's not necessarily the way it is in reality. So 
So when we look further into it, for instance, you look at the, the UK perspective, the way the UK sort of describe it in their um, joint doctrine publication, 001, from 2014. Um, they say that military strategy has a role to play in developing policy through delivering military advice, including ultimately the advice delivered by Chief of Defense Staff to the Prime Minister. It's not that it's completely different from the Norwegian perspective, but it's, it emphasizes the military role as an advisor, and it, and it depicts a much clearer uh, responsibility to participate in the building of policy than the Norwegian, Norwegian framing does. Um, so in sense, we we're actually talking more of something like this. So, it's, so it crosses each other's boundaries. There's a, it's more like a gray zone. And, and we call this sort of a fog of ambiguity that we have to discuss. So, so in the chapter, we try to, try to discuss the phenomenon of military strategy. And the last one is, of course, uh, the British perspective is much more like um, Janowitz's uh, perspective of how we see the, the division between military society. So this is basically what the chapter does. It discusses this way of looking at military strategy. Does, where does it belong? What does it um, entail? And how, the, how do we make sense of it? I think I'll stop there for now, Rob, because I think that gives sort of a broad understanding of, of the chapter. And as it's very, very kind of you, very clearly done, as, as classically you do, um, you've got a very thorough understanding of how theory um, can be understood through practice and vice versa, which is really useful. Um, I'm not going to add anything at all to the volume because these guys have done such a super job. It's not about what I wrote. Uh, we're, we're sort of uh, up to time, really. Um, we've had interesting discussion about uh, military strategy. What is it? Um, how is it implemented? Uh, why is it missing in action? Which I think was this kind of one of the phrases that Jana used right at the very beginning of our, our project. Uh, we've heard a bit about um, civil, military, um, I'm not going to say cooperation, but at least differences of priority, differences of perspective. And I think one of the things that's very interesting there is that there are always differences of priority. That's not new, um, regardless of the international situation. Civil servants, those unsung uh, heroes and heroines of you know uh, of UK government and allied governments—they're the continuity people. You know, ministers may have you know particular agendas in very short periods of time, but they are they are you know important um, figures in in this process too. And so that civil military dialogue is not just between politicians and military personnel. Let's just keep that in mind as well. I think we got um, three uh, things I think that came out of this um, strategy. Uh, we're hearing has become rather defensive um, for Europeans. Uh, and from NATO more broadly, and it might even have become no more than risk management, uh, which is quite worrying, because that's not what it originally set out to be at all. It's used by some actors, uh, that risk management. Risk is used as leverage, and I think that's a, a really interesting problem for us to solve, is how willing certain actors are in the world at the moment to use risk uh, to their advantage. And we heard about political warfare, uh, in great depth, you know, George Cannon's work seems to echo uh, still down the ages for us. Secondly, we heard about strategy as executing policy, fulfilling policy goals, maximising freedom of action, maximising choice, I think, is important for Western democratic nations. And then finally, we heard about, um, my own conceit about this is that strategy is about decisions. And maybe the lack of strategy is a lack of courage to make really difficult decisions at the moment, 
in an, a geopolitical environment. We've become so inured to peace since the 1990s, we've actually forgotten how to take these really, really tough uh, decisions. But ultimately, if you excuse the fact the British Prime Minister thinks there's a pepper pig strategy, uh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, um, that actually it's a reminder that war is far too serious a business and strategy is far too serious a business to leave only to politicians. Military personnel have a role to play. Um, but the, the encouraging point I want you to go away with is that um, actually perhaps the reason there isn't a clear military strategy for NATO nations is because NATO's already won. It's already got what it wants, which is a peaceful world, rules-based international system, uh, international by design, and its military forces are rather like a fleet in being. It exists, and that is itself the success story that NATO has been since 1949. So I want to say thank you to our Norwegian team, um, who are only one small fraction of the alliance effort that went into this, with Polish authors, Turkish authors, we heard about Canadian uh, uh, sort of um, Danish authors and so on. So thank you to all of you uh, for the project, and thank you particularly to the Norwegian uh, government who actually put up the money <laughs> to do this, so I'm really grateful uh, for those. And my fellow authors particularly, um, uh, you know, Steiner, uh, Anders, uh, Jana, all the others who are not here represented. Thank you to Hearst as well. And if you're looking for a Christmas present, uh, for the price of a small bottle of wine or even a fraction of a bottle of champagne, £13 on Amazon, apparently, uh, you can get yourself a military strategy in the 21st century, the challenge for NATO, uh, and we're always happy to sign copies for you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.